Ansel, this was an awesome show getting Stacey Herbert on. We talked about a ton of different stuff. What were your thoughts on this interview with Stacey? Well, I was super thrilled. I've been watching Stacey and Max for a long time. And the other interviews that we've had so far, it is, I've watched them as long too, but it's always a thrill to get to talk to somebody that you've watched for a long time. And man, did Stacey have a lot of good stuff to say in a different way. She took it in a different way than what we were thinking that she was going to do. Yeah. I mean, Stacy is a storyteller and she is a master yeah. memer. And really this pod was more or less about the narratives that are kind of like flying around, you know, back in the early 2000s, back in the 60s and 70s, and then forward looking as well. So it's definitely a different take to the other guests that we've had on, but I think it's part of the picture and definitely, you know, Stacy had a lot of fantastic things to say and there's a lot of good bites in here. So, you know, I think that's enough of us and let's just get right into the interview. All right, you guys, we have a woman here that needs no introduction. She is very well known in the Bitcoin space. This is Stacy Herbert. Welcome to FedWatch. How's it going, Stacy? Hey, good to be here. <laughs> so Stacy, obviously you and Max have been in the Bitcoin space, you know, what, since, was it 2011, 2012? 2011, very early 2011. We were first contacted in 2010. We hadn't really covered it at that point, but John Matonis reached out to us because he had been watching our show based on, we were covering gold and silver a lot. So hard money and we were very anti-Federal Reserve and central banks. And he reached out and said, had you heard of Bitcoin yet? Yeah, that, I mean, that's awesome. And I mean, you guys really ran with it. And and honestly, I, I feel like you guys were one of the first like places that a lot of people did get orange pilled. So I guess just to kind of start it off, like, you know, what is it like for you creating a daily show about Bitcoin, you know, really being kind of like a crossway for Bitcoin to enter into other spheres of conversation, you know, kind of breaking Bitcoin into those horizontal areas that you guys have done such a good job with, you know, what, what is that process like for you? And, you know, what, what has that experience been like doing that for the past nine years? Nine years. <laughs> well, you know, I think it was, we met Bitcoin at the right time for everybody. I mean, I do think the fact that our show Kaiser Report was broadcast is broadcast in dozens and dozens of countries around the world and dubbed into Spanish. So it goes through Latin America. It helped with a, a sort of free and fair distribution. Like everybody in the world, all our audience in the world got to hear about it at $1, $2, $3, $5, $7, $10. Like all those early days, we were talking about it, talking about it. And in terms of distribution of Bitcoin, I think that must have helped. You know, I'm, I'm only assuming it did. At the time, you know, we were talking a lot about gold and silver and the financial system. So we'd like, we were in the Genesis block of Chancellor on brink of second bailout for banks. Like that was like content from Kaiser report. This was already stuff we were talking about in terms of the bigger picture and the reason for Bitcoin, why Bitcoin is what it is, is like, we were already talking about that. We were already talking about the fiat system, the banking system, the, the death, rattle of fiat, the central bankers corrupting the system, the Cantillion effect. We were talking about all that stuff before we met Bitcoin. And so, you know, our audience was already primed for it. They were already interested in this sort of content and they were ready for it. So, you know, I 
feel like we've kind of grown along with it because in those early days, it was still magical internet money, right? Everybody, all those early people in it, when we, Max spoke at the very first Bitcoin conference, all those early people, like it was, it, it's hard to even describe how different it was then compared to now. Like now it's so polite and friendly. Everybody talks about toxic Bitcoin Twitter, but then it was just like, you know, hackers, geeks, co- like it was the, it was just that. There were no polite people in there. There were no bankers. There were no respectable people. It was just like a bunch of freaks. And that was what it was at the beginning. Nobody, I mean, it was still being determined what it is. And, you know, I remember buying some iPhones online with Bitcoin that I had converted to a gift card. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you how many Bitcoin I spent on it, but at the time I remember being like, oh my God, like we had already been talking about it for a year or two. And I was like, wow, this is so exciting. I can't believe Apple is accepting Bitcoin for this. And, you know, back then people were talking about it as a payments system and competing with Visa and MasterCard and things like that. So, you know, obviously once, once the whole fork wars happened and it split off, then we, then it became like indisputable that it was instead a store of value. Like, but Bitcoin was, you know, Bitcoin's always reflecting the community around it. It is like, it's, it's, it's all of that stuff. All of those things are part of the protocol, right? That's the game theory is like, all the people attacking it, all the people trying to come up with an alternative, all the people using it, all the people losing it, all the people speculating on it, all, all of that goes into what it becomes. So like, it, it's hard to even compare Bitcoiner today to a Bitcoiner in 2011 or 2012 or 2013 or 14. Like in every year, it becomes, there's a different history. There's a, you know, obviously a bigger history and an understanding that comes you know, everybody at that time was, it was new. We were discovering what it was, who, you know, a lot of it was wrong. If you look back at it, you're like, oh, I missed that part of it. I didn't understand it at the time, but now I do. Yeah. And I mean, the education has really, you know, like the the educators and, and information out there has really improved a lot since you guys really started evangelizing. A lot of our guests on this show haven't necessarily gone down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. And from like a macro perspective, I would argue that while we have a lot of amazing experts on here to talk about macro, you and Max may have been more right about, you know, what the future holds in 2011 than they were. And I'm just kind of curious, you know, what is like, what is your perspective in view of the US and global economy and what's happening right now? So Max is his own genius. Like he, he could figure out these big things. He, his background was obviously he had created one of the very first digital currencies, like a it, part of the 30 year or 25 years before Bitcoin was miraculously birthed. Like there were a lot of things, you know, that the cypherpunks had done, that Max had done with um, the Hollywood dollar, which was the first uh, convertible digital currency. So he has a pat you know, he got a patent on that. But he could talk to you on his interview about that. What I added to it or what we I understood is my background was in Hollywood and and script writing and, and developing films and projects. And by the way, Aristotle is still considered the expert on both money, what makes a good money and what makes a good story. So any all script, you know, they're called D girls. 
in Hollywood, anybody working on your scripts, you read Aristotle's Poetics. What is a good story? And you learn from there. It's a very simple, tiny text, and it gives you the fundamentals. It all boils down to man versus man, man versus himself, man versus nature. Okay? <laughs> you know, those are the good stories. So what, that was as a storyteller and somebody who worked on stories, that was my interest when Max, when I first met Max in 2003 and he was talking about being a banker and what bankers did and like the world that was right around me, but I hadn't seen it. Like I was like so surprised at his stories that he was telling about what bankers do. And I couldn't believe it. Like the bad guy doesn't win. Okay. That's a, that's a, one of the basic stories that you, you you're taught like you can't do that in Hollywood. The bad guy shouldn't win. They can't win. And so, you know, I started reading the Financial Times and the Economist, which he was reading every day or every week with the Economist. And I I remember always going like, oh my God, look, it's right here. Like that's what you were talking about. I can't believe they're committing that fraud. Like at me as a storyteller, and like I wanted to tell everybody, like you everybody you have to see this you won't believe it like this is what's going on and still to this day and i i can't believe no other financial news has 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 like copied us yet but like nobody does it that way nobody entertains with uh, uh, they try to hide it and obfuscate all the reality of it through just dry language and like like the balance sheet matters and what the earnings report will show and you know it and it's none of that it's you know it's made up of the same humans that make up every community but there is kind of a conspiracy about how dodgy the whole thing is and covering that up in terms of like not not like setting up some sort of system that so many people just don't know it. I had gone my whole life, I you know, thirty something years at that point where I hadn't uh, ever heard of this stuff, and you know, I was in the entertainment industry. I was I was telling people about the world. That's my your job as an you know in Hollywood. You're trying to reflect society, and yet I didn't know the, anything about this financial system or the monetary system. So Stacey, I have along those lines of memes and narratives, you guys come up with some great stuff. So Giabo, the global insurrection against banker occupation, I think that's a couple years old or maybe even five years old now. Is Do you see a connection between the unrest on the street that we see in the US and this, the, the Giabo? Do you think that it's, it's really at its heart an economic question, a monetary question? These are things that you guys talk about on the Kaiser Report, so... Max coined that back in 2010 or 2011, oh, wow, around okay. the same time. So that was during the uprisings, the Arab Spring. Also in Spain, they had the Indignados. In France, it was the Precariat. Remember, you know, we were living in Paris, and the Degonfle were Degonfle were like slicing tires on cars in the center of Paris and the rich areas and burning cars everywhere. It was all over the place. This was during the financial crisis. There were boss nappings, like they, that didn't get global attention, but there were a lot of boss nappings happening in France. So like <laughs> we were, re- again, we were reporting before Kaiser Report, we were doing it for the BBC and also for Al Jazeera. So we were observing the world and reporting what we're seeing. Bizarrely, nobody else was doing it. Like I said, like we were in Paris and you had these day and play and the, and the, the cars burning and like people were talking, were acting as if nothing was happening. So in terms of what's going on today, yes, that's still the same part of that. Again, like that Genesis block of a uh, chancellor on brink of second bailout for bank. Those were, those were the ideas we were talking about. That was like what was going on. If, if you 
paid attention if you understood it. Now, when you look at history, you could see sort of cycles always repeating. And I know we're going to talk about the fourth turning because that's just these cycles. Humans go through cycles and it's because we, you know, we, we always have the same, like power does the same thing every time as they're rising, as they're falling. People get afraid, people panic, people get greedy. That's why you have cycles. Like it, you can bet on it and that's why you can create cycles and, and look at cycles. But you know, what I see is happening today, this global insurrection against banker occupation is that, you know, say you look at the 1960s, late 1960s and early 70s, here's an early empire of America. And our leaders, the older generation, took us into a war in Vietnam, which bankrupted us, but also which bankrupted us morally and culturally at home. And we were still, at that time, Americans believed we were the good guys. We had won World War II. We helped Europe rebuild with the Marshall Plan. We were the good guys. Now, over the course of a decade, young Americans, a huge population, the boomers, came to realize that they were being lied to. And what we know now, based on freedom of information and documents revealed, is that Eisenhower, maybe not Eisenhower, but certainly JFK, LBJ, Nixon, Robert McNamara, they all knew, said, it's on audio tape, it's in memos, that they knew for 100% certainty way back in 1963 that we could not win that war. They knew it was never going to be won. But they kept doubling down and doubling down. And what Robert McNamara had written in his exit memo to the president is like, it was 80% to save face because we couldn't let the Soviets think that we, you know, the, the international communists think that we had lost. So we kept on doubling down. And what were we doing while we're bankrupt, while we're bankrupting ourselves, we're sacrificing our children. Those 68, 70,000 American children that were killed and the hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese we sacrificed them because we were trying to save face, because we kept on doubling down the whole way into this disastrous war. Now, cut to today, we have the same exact thing. And by the way, the people in power are those same boomers that were abused back then. They're now the abuser because we went off the gold center in 1971 because of the Vietnam War. We went bankrupt, okay? We defaulted on our gold debts to England and the rest of the world. So, cut to 50, 49 years later, and we're doubling down on all that QE, all that ZERP. That's doubling down. That's, that's the Robert McNamara. That's JFK. That's LBJ. This is the same thing they did. They kept doubling down. And I bet you anything, in a few decades, once all those Fed minutes are released, we'll find out that they knew for a fact this is, was going to cause this Cantillian effect. This, it was going to sacrifice our children. The Z and, and gen, the younger millennials, they all understand this, whether or not they understand it like on paper, like they could write it down what they're angry about. But they understand they've been sacrificed. And you can see that. You, you know, we saw body bags being brought home back in Vietnam. But now you're seeing those huge piles of debt that they're coming out of university with and the house prices like way beyond anything possibly affordable for people in the gig economy, which are the only jobs available and doubling down like our policymakers, they keep on extending and pretending 
to save face, right? That to keep this whole uh, system going, to keep the U.S. dollar reserve uh, global system going. You know, like sending our jobs to China in 1999-2000 under, under uh, Clinton really accelerated it. But uh, of course, it was Nixon who started the process to, that enabled this as the U.S. went broke, right? We sent our jobs overseas and we have to do that. You have to do that if you're going to have the reserve currency. But our elite wanted power. They want to be able to punish anybody that they, they, you know, that they want to in the world who disobeys them. And you cannot have a reserve currency without a massive trade deficit. There's no other way to get your dollars into the hands of the rest of the world unless you just give it to them for free, airdrop it, like any other shitcoin. So that that was part. That's part of this. This is them sacrificing their children. You know, maybe they thought like they could print enough for themselves and make sure their kids are okay and they're going to be ahead in some way. But now we're facing that Thucydides trap as we see China run away with everything. They're way ahead of us in so many technologies, partly because of just having a basic factory there, right? That a factory is the innovation factory as well. That's where you learn how to make things and build things and create wealth and how problems, how to fix problems. Like you see the problem there. Like you can't, you can't teach that to somebody remotely here that doesn't is not involved in, in the actual production. So I think it's just a rising up against that they're being sacrificed to this war, essentially, this fiat war. What point do you think we are in that process? Because I don't know, it feels like we're actually very early in it. Like if you compare it to Vietnam, after Vietnam, you know, there was the um, great inflation and then Volcker and then we we went back to 8% growth rates in the 80s a couple of years. So I don't know. I feel like we are so far away from growth again. Where, where do you see us in this kind of whole process? And when when do we see maybe a new Bretton Woods type agreement, if there's going to be one? Well, okay. I remember the 70s. I remember the uh, stagflation. I remember the we had the oil embargo, and then the Iran revolution, which caused huge price spikes in oil. It, it was unnecessary, it turns out, but there were huge price spikes in oil because people thought oil was going to come offline. So there, there were those huge lines that you can see, you know, if you Google it, the 73-74 uh, oil embargo or the 79 Iran ev- revolution. And then we had these huge lines. You could only go to the gas station on odds or evens days, depending on what your license plate was. And then a lot of what was going on was, you know, because this whole fiat system was the first time in thousands of years of history. People were still uncertain. It was volatile. Like nobody knew for sure that this thing could actually work. And Volcker came in and raised rates to 20% and against all the howls of everybody. And he just did it. And, and people the international community said, okay, he's going to defend the dollar. So the dollar's as good as gold. They'll accept that. In the meantime, like the fiat system did allow what we see, it's trickled down and you see it everywhere. It's private equity, right? Basically, America was able to extract a huge amount of equity that they had built up over decades. So that's what, you know, that post-war period, everybody thinks of as this great period in U.S. history for industrialization, for the middle class. It was one of the biggest increases in world history of any middle class. And that was partly to do with 
you know, the fact that we were the only economy that survived World War II because we hadn't been bombed out. We had the GI Bill, the suburbs built, like in the entire infrastructure, the highway, you know, the highway system was built. All of that stuff was being built for this new middle class. And, you know, they all had the steady jobs and all that stuff, blah, blah, blah. And then post-70s, uh, like it was, it was all turmoil on the streets. New York City went bankrupt. It was still that disintegration from the Vietnam, the cultural wars and uh, all that stuff that happened in the streets going on. And then 80s came. All those boomers flipped from being hippies to yuppies. They went to, you know, they all wanted to work on Wall Street and get those big shoulder pads on the women and start working. And they basically set about dismantling the U.S. and selling all the parts and sending the jobs overseas. And that's what happened over the course of it's slowly and then suddenly, right? That's how you go bankrupt. It's all like slowly. They make choices that seem wise at the time. You know, you sell your productive capacity and wow, we're getting a good price for it. And, you know, this will give me a few years income and I won't think about what happens after five years from now, but it seems good right now. And whether or not there'll be any growth, well, it's hard to tell. It's because how, like where all of the biggest corporations are, Apple, Amazon, Tesla's, obviously there's still some banks up there. You know, they're not really jobs intensive. Like you don't have many jobs with it. It's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of money. I mean, Jeff Bezos is worth 200 billion now and he has a lot of uh, warehouse workers, but how many are, are going to replace by robots? I don't know. I don't know, but America needs to get the wealth producing capacity back here before it can get better. So, you know, I'm glad I'm not a policymaker because I, you know, I, I don't think you'll be very popular doing that because uh, things will have to change. But, you know, you can't look at America, you can't drive across America as we've done twice in the past three years and see that burnt out heartland and just look away. Like you can't just, it's not stable in the long run. You can't just do that. And, and just not have an answer for it, you know, instead of just, you know, oh, learn to code. That was always the thing that, that Clinton-esque sort of people said. It's just like, just learn to code. You know, okay, you lost your job in the factory, now code. As if, of course, like the rest of the world can't do that as well. Yep. I mean, that's how you create the Giabo, right? Um, in, in America is by really abusing those people. While you're kind of talking about, you know, all the biggest companies don't create that many jobs. It, it's, it kind of reminds me of Jeff Booth's kind of theory around like technology is just massively deflationary and technology is going to just continue to destroy jobs on the exponential level. And that's why we need a deflationary currency. Like that's the counterforce in order to bring balance, right? So as technology destroys jobs, we need something that actually holds value and, and fiat just doesn't serve that. So, I mean, be, I'd be happy to shift over to Bitcoin and kind of talk about like what Bitcoin means to the world and, you know, why you and Max, I think you touched on it a little bit, but why you guys, you know, push it so hard as, as a potential answer. Well, you know, Marshall McLuhan said the medium is the message. The medium is Bitcoin and it's sending a message. That's that's the message. The message is like, you know, just like those anti-war act activists, it's like, we're not going to sacrifice ourselves. We're not going to sacrifice ourselves to this ridiculous, pointless war. We're not going to sacrifice ourselves to these ridiculous, unpayable debts. So uh, why should I 
have to incur $50,000 or 100000 in debt just to get the education that you got for free, but because you racked up so many unpayable debts that you refuse to pay and you keep rolling it over and now it's landing in my lap, I'm going to exit the system to you know, drop out as they did in the 1970s. It's like, it's the equivalent of say, burning your draft card and going to Canada. It's like, that's what we're telling you. And like, okay, keep printing all that money. Keep printing all that bad debt. You know, it's a, all a, a ruse and a fraud. So keep doing it. Have fun. Uh, I'm exiting your system. You can't make me have to be part of it. So something that I like to say on Twitter is Bitcoin has mass appeal. The masses don't know it yet. Um, You know, can we talk about like what this next wave of adoption looks like and what you see as being like the, the main drivers around that? Is it really like kind of more macro and people waking up or is it still more about greed and, and making money? Like what's, what's, what's the formula? Well, there's like 7 billion people on earth and they all have their own unique needs and wants and desires at various parts of the time. It depends on where they live. You know, somebody living in Yemen is going to have a different set of needs and requirements in their life than somebody living in Los Angeles or Hollywood or something like that or New York City. So you're always going to have the speculators. That's part of human nature. We have like, just look at history since since 1600 when you know we had the first stock exchange 1602 in Amsterdam like people get euphoric they go crazy that they're going to people pile into things like easy money that's going to happen you're also going to have as part of deglobalization that is happening because of that thucydides trap and no empire goes away quietly they throw tantrums they they tear apart their own financial system they they they're the ones you know since I think like 2009 under Obama was the first time we cut a whole nation off from SWIFT, which was Iran at that time. Okay, great. You're the superpower. You get to do that. But try using it a second time or a third time. And they have. And what is what are people like, countries like Germany are starting to develop alternatives to SWIFT. That's how your power starts to decline. That's the problem with being an empire. That's the problem with being Rome. Like you are powerful. You can smite people around the world, you know, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and the people have to obey, but they, they inevitably welcome in the barbarians. So you're going to have people as this deglobalization picks up and America tries to exert its power, they're going to start punishing all sorts of people and all sorts of people in, in entire nations because, you know, it's just really the elite whatever a nation fighting each other like the ordinary people are just ordinary people trying to live their life and so you know people like in venezuela have to use bitcoin they find bitcoin because they have to because their nation is cut off from the financial grid but they have hyperinflation so that's one way you're going to find people find it we interviewed gray jabezi recently he lived he's an entrepreneur in south africa but he has like businesses across Africa. And he was saying that in Nigeria, almost all of his customers use Bitcoin now as a unit of account. And why? Like, it's not like those African nations are being intentionally, like that they're being punished for some bad people in their country. It's just like the American banking system and the financial grid doesn't want to bother with them. The people don't have enough savings. They don't have enough money to build any sort of grid to that country, that continent. So 
you know, so they have to find alternatives because there's a huge market apparently for used cars from Japan to be sent to Nigeria. But it's hard to actually transfer the money there because of the U.S. banking system runs any international trade. So it's like you'll have to use like three or four banks. It doesn't go to one. So they use Bitcoin. So it's being used as a unit of account. They price their cars in Bitcoin and they buy it from Japan. And they're not, spec- they're not using it as a store of value or holding it or stacking it or, or you know, hodl and all that stuff. They're like, they need a car and they're going to buy a car whatever way they can and they buy it with Bitcoin. But this is at the margin. Like this is the, the, these are the barbaric thoughts at the edge of empire that start to whittle away at the power and the authority of the empire. So we have an empire of global debt and we have an empire of dollars and the administrators of it are losing. They're, lo- they're, they're losing their authority over the system because people will find alternatives because that's what humans do. We're innovative and we, we, our genes want to live. They want to propagate and keep on living. So they're going to do whatever it takes to survive. So yeah, to ride around Swift and to ride around the kind of... I guess the dollar financial system, or you called it financial grid, some countries might turn to CBDCs. So I wanted to transition to that now and talk about, there's a lot of people in the gold and silver community that they're very convinced that there's, you know, the elites are, are consolidating power and they're going to come out with a CBDC so they can rule the world and, and all this stuff. And I'm very skeptical that a Fed coin is any coming out anytime soon. But what's your take on CBDCs? And do you think we'll see something along that line coming out over the next five, 10 years? I don't, I mean, I I think it's just another extension of fiat and perhaps they might do that in order to, you know, save money because, you know, the U.S. mint runs out of money every time, you know, it costs more to to, uh, print a a nickel or a dime or a quarter. Like they get, it, it costs a lot to print currency and they don't have any money and like real wealth. So, you know, maybe they might do a digital currency. I don't see it as any, it, it might, you know, orange pill some people because, you know, you hear like in, in Venezuela, how do they describe it? Okay. They say, okay, here's the Petro. Use this. It's like Bitcoin, right? <laughs> and people are like, what's Bitcoin? And then they go Google it and search it and go, oh, wait, well, why don't we just have Bitcoin? And I think what you'll see maybe that might be the only thing that comes close to working is like what Mark Carney had said, remember not last year at the, not this year's Jackson hole, but last year he said that the dollar was no longer serving well as a reserve currency and that there would need to be as John Maynard Keynes, by the way, predicted at Bretton Woods, he said that this would happen, that these trade imbalances would become dangerous and they have become dangerous. So there will have, they, they'll try, they'll invent just like a neutral global settlement layer for between nations, like on a nation state level. It won't be for citizens. It'll be like the SDR. It'll be a digital SDR. That's what I think they'll probably do. The US won't really want that because we, we have an exorbitant privilege right now. But I think it's probably inevitable that they'll they'll come up with something like that. But it'll just be a ledger, really, which is you know the, the original thing was for the bankor. They wanted that was the other idea was like instead of having one country be you know this superpower and have an exorbitant privilege where they 
would have to run huge trade deficits. This you would not want, you would not be incentivized to have either a surplus or a, a deficit. So it it's supposed to kind of balance out. The intention was to balance out global trade to not cause these imbalances of beggar thy neighbor and the distortions of imbalances like that. Well, that sounds like some central banking BS as it is. The fact that they think that they can manufacture a balanced global economy. Yeah, but they'll they'll try to do they'll look you're always fighting the last war, right? The the war they're going to try to fight is all the debt that they've built up and they don't know how to get rid of it and where to go and because it's it's an exponential debt story and we all know like everybody in this pandemic you see now you know what exponential means, you know like it, it looks on the chart, like it looks kind of slow in the first, like, oh, only two people have it. Okay, now four. Oh, well, it's only eight. And then you're like, yeah, <laughs> it's pretty fast, like how it like gets exponential. So like, obviously, they're, they're fighting, they're doubling down, doubling down, doubling down on all of these debts, trying to print, 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 print faster and faster and more money. And they're, they're going to want to do a Hail Mary. They'll, they need a Hail Mary. And again, like comparing it to Vietnam, there were constant Hail Marys. Rolling thunder, this is going to solve it. I, the enemy is going to be demoralized and they're going to uh, come to the negotiating table. Enemy wasn't demoralized. In fact, that, that your stupid program that killed all their kids, that made them angrier and more motivated. The same thing here is they think like, we're going to shock the markets. We're going to demoralize our, the short-selling enemies, the doubters. We're going to demoralize them by showing them like how amazing and fast we can print money and it never works. And they're going to keep on doing it until we, like, they're, they're going to have the equivalent of Jay Powell being airlifted from, from the Fed. You know, the same thing as the U.S. like being airlifted out of Saigon. And so, do you have another question? Well, I just wanted to make sure that we touch on Bitcoin going in the next, you know, four to the next halving or two. What what do you see Bitcoin doing over that period? Uh, you've been involved with Bitcoin for a long time. So you've seen a lot, pretty much all of the cycles going two cycles forward. Where do you think we are? I know Max likes to talk about a hundred thousand or more, a million. Do, do you see us getting there or is, are you in the camp of like market cap doesn't, isn't too exciting. It's kind of like what it does to the financial system and stuff like that. Yeah. It's kind of broad because there's a few different, there's the individual. And I think for the individual, I think it is really important to have one Satoshi fuck you money. Like it's your, 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 your essence, your being is more important than anything. No matter what all these politicians do to ruin our lives, like your inner self, like you're just having one Satoshi a hundred Satoshis, like it could change how you see the world. Like, by the way, you know, the French Enlightenment, Diderot printed that encyclopedia in, in what, 1751, started publishing it. And that was such a revolutionary act at the time. It caused, uh, it caused literal riots in the Senate. And he was hounded and hounded and hounded. And he lost all his friends because you know, they were afraid to be published in the encyclopedia because the authorities did not like this. And this was radical ideas. And you're, you know, people should get their knowledge from the clergy, like, and the elite, we control information. And the same here is like, once you realize that separation of state and money, and once you realize that sovereignty, you know, you need a Satoshi of your own. 
to understand the power you have, even despite all of this this greater and greater surveillance capitalism and this greater and greater uh, quintillion effect. Like it's it's just a it's hard to describe until you do it. And you know, I, I've always been reluctant to. You know, one campaign we ran was buy silver crash J.P. Morgan, and what what was that was about was that J.P. Morgan, you know, got gifted essentially Bear Stearns during the very early days of the financial crisis. That was before the whole collapse. That was in like March of two thousand and eight. The first time gold went to a thousand dollars, Bear Stearns had collapsed that weekend, and J.P. Morgan got gifted, you know, Bear Stearns. But part of that gift was this huge, massive short position on silver. So that short position left them severely vulnerable to a price increase. So because it was way more, their position was way more than annual production of silver. So if you take off every sing, if you take ounces of silver off the market, that whole thing, they, they could blow, you could blow up that bank. So that's why we were like, buy silver, crash JP Morgan. And it was only like 11 bucks at the time. Just buy an ounce of silver. Everybody had, you know, most people in the world in the developed world have 11 bucks, like just buy an ounce of silver and like we could, we could change the dynamics of this relationship, right? Let's them, let's teach them a lesson. Let's, you can't mess with us. You can't mess with the markets. We see you manipulating markets. We see what you're doing to markets. So we can show you that we see you like it's a message. The medium is the message. Buying an ounce of silver is the message. So with Satoshi, if you spend five, 10 bucks, on Bitcoin, you have to learn a lot and you understand it forces you to understand so much about the world around you, the monetary policy and all that stuff. In terms of actual Bitcoin development, you know, lightning and then liquid lightning, like I said, we're going through deglobalization. So you're going to see more and more need from merchants to have a censorship resistant payments rail because there will be more and more censorship because not only will the you know, U.S. government not want any competition. I mean, look what they're doing to TikTok. TikTok has kicked every American corporation ass and they're like smashing and grabbing the assets. They're trying to just like, no, we're going to take you. Give, sell yourself to an American company. You're going to see more of that. But you're also going to see their elite media like, CM, like uh, MSNBC or Fox or all that. You know, part of what you've seen in the last four years with all this hysteria on the cable news, like all these uh, Russia gate and all these sort of conspiracy theories on all the cable news channels is that the, a failure of the elite messaging system, they can't influence the population. They're not able to persuade the population anymore. And what they're doing is deplatforming all those voices. They're like, well, let's get rid of, let's same with Vietnam. Like you, you just cut off their supply lines, cut off their avenue to get their message out. Don't let anybody hear them. And then maybe the power will go away. That's how you treat barbarians at the gates. And that's what they're trying to do. So you're going to see more and more attempts to deplatform voices. Like first it was like, you know, the Alex Joneses of the world, but it's going to, it's coming in closer and closer to anybody. Pretty soon it'll be people who are challenging central bank authority. We've gotten away with it for the last, you know, 10 years. But as that power disintegrates, as faith in our institutions disintegrates, as deglobalization accelerates, it's going to drive more people into looking for censorship-resistant alternatives. And then with liquid, you know, there's a whole new world to be built in this post-fiat system. And entrepreneurs are always looking for capital to build their companies. 
there are always people who want to speculate. They want to buy, you know, into these, you know, risky ventures building this new company. And you could either do that ICO route of like, here, send us free money and you get nothing in return unless you can flip this useless coin, worthless coin to somebody else. And that's what it incentivized. But here, you know, people, they, you know, I don't, I don't know, you know, people want to speculate. So you could either scold them, but since it's been around since 1602, you know, it seems like people want to do it. So you can't stop them from speculating. And they either go on a Robinhood app and trade Tesla, Tesla because it's split <laughs> five for one. Who knows? Like if they want to speculate, that's what they want to do. But I, I think Liquid, you'll see a lot of uh, developments on, on there. I saw Adam Back uh, tweeting today, this morning about that. There was this Bermuda was using Liquid. Did you see this? To do stimulus checks. Basically, they've coded a token, but that only could be used by those citizens at specific locations. Like it's a way to get stimulus checks, stimulus money to these people built using Bitcoin and Liquid. So I haven't looked into it, but you know, I think you'll see more sort of interaction and development. Things like nation states are, are starting to, they're going to start interacting with the Bitcoin protocol. And the Bit- I don't know if it's going to be through Liquid or other things, but they'll use these neutral platforms to try to build their own systems. Once the dollar system becomes so fragile and so sensor, you know, it's always censoring now. It's censoring too much. And so it's volatile and you can't trust it. Like any nation or peoples or communities that you, you want to become anti-fragile, right? That's, that's the instinct of a, of a group of people. You don't want to be like, as soon as you get, you know, as soon as your uh, water supply gets cut off for a week, you re- the next time you're like, I'm never going to, if a hurricane's coming through, I'm going to make sure to have a whole bunch of water here because I don't want to go not, uh, again like a week without water. Like I, you, you, wanna, you become more anti-fragile. So the same thing with the currency grid. It's like people are like, well, you know, Germany, they're a very powerful, productive, industrious nation and they're cut off. The U.S. told them they can't, tr- they can't do these deals with Iran and we're not going to allow those, trans- those deals to be settled on via SWIFT. So they're, they're naturally going to develop another system that they could control or they're going to go on Bitcoin. And I think they'll end up finding Bitcoin because I think they're struggling to find a way to do it themselves. The answer is already there. I think that's a great place to stop. You know, a lot of people are going to realize that Bitcoin as a neutral settlement layer is, is there and, and that's going to help Bitcoin take off. Stacy. There's a lot of places where people can learn from you and continue to get this fantastic information. Why don't you plug yourself? I will plug myself. Let me see. We have orangepill.buzzsprout.com. That's where you can find our audio podcasts, all the uh, RSS feeds to whether you like Spotify or Apple Podcasts or what. But we also upload it to youtube.com forward slash Max Kaiser TV. And of course, you can find Kaiser Report online. Kaiser Report will always have its place, especially as it first to introduce so many to Bitcoin. But the, the most amazing thing about Kaiser Report is it gets dubbed into Spanish. And, you know, in the U.S. or Western markets, there's a lot of 
content in English language content. There's like loads and loads of great content where you can learn stuff and all that sort of thing. Like you can find all sorts of content about monetary policy, about banking, central banking, bankers, Bitcoin, everything. But in the Spanish language, it's, it's a, there's, you know, those countries, that whole region of Latin America has like uh, 1950s America is like three big networks and they control everything. So the fact that we've been able to spread all across Latin America, all Spanish language speaking countries, it's just, it's been, when we go there, it's like remarkable. There's so many Bitcoiners in Mexico, Colombia, Cuba, Venezuela, you know, Argentina, and they've heard about Bitcoin and all of these sort of these ideas. I mean, they're at the the hard end of uh, imperialism, as you know. So, I mean, they understand it instantly. They don't have to be educated too much, but you know, Max Kaiser TV at YouTube is a place to find all of that video content. Awesome. Stacey, thank you again for coming on the show. You guys can find the show at Bitcoin Magazine. You can find me at CK underscore Snarks. You can find Ansel at Ansel Lindner and go check out the Bitcoin Dictionary. Stacey, you should check it out too. Ansel essentially defined all these Bitcoin terms and made like a formal dictionary of it. So I think it's a really cool resource. I have, a, I have a good one to add to it that Orange Pill just came up with this past week. Our guest, Nozomi Hayes. She, yeah, she writes for Bitcoin Magazine a lot. I think she's one of the most underrated people in all of the Bitcoin space. She is so brilliant. And, you know, also the fact that she comes from Japan and has a different way of looking at the world compared to what all of our compatriots do is just fascinating. But she came up with basically calling Bitcoin, holy shit coin. It's like, holy shit. When she, she described her like coming to the realization of actually how amazing and powerful Bitcoin was, like when she understood it, she said, holy shit. And it was just a, like a genius moment in the last episode of Orange Pill, but it's holy shit coin. Like <laughs> that's that sort of moment. That's what I'm saying. You need a Satoshi of your own. It's like you get to that yeah. moment of like, oh my God, I can't believe this. It's the old aha moment, but it once I think once you see other people getting it for a long time, and then it's your turn to get it, I think, yeah, you, they, it, it's bigger and bigger. Holy shit, coin. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> Add it to the dictionary. All right. Peace, guys. A quick reminder that all of the content in this episode is for informational and entertainment purposes only. You should not construe the information as legal, tax, investment, financial, or any other advice. Nothing contained in this presentation constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, or offer by BTC Media, the Let's Talk Bitcoin Podcast Network, or any third-party service provider to buy or sell securities or any other financial instruments. Do your own research.